0: Facing Leviathan is a podcast about pursuing truth, one big question at a time through the discipline of listening. Truth is too big to tame. But if we pay close attention, we might get the chance to glimpse something truly magnificent. So please join me in this pursuit, one week at a time. Hello and welcome to Chasing Leviathan. I'm your host, PJ Weary, and I'm here with Dr. Chris McCray, Associate Professor at the Department of Communication at University of Southern Florida. And uh, it's a real pleasure to have you today. Yeah, thanks, PJ. I'm super excited to be here and talk with you and, and uh, yeah. And so today we're talking about your book, Listening for Learning, Performing a Pedagogy of Sound and Listening. Um. And what I really appreciate uh, is the way that you have taken kind of academic discourse and folded creative discourse into it. But it does create, um, it, it, it creates uh, almost a new vocabulary. Like there's a lot of phrases that I'm like, oh, he's using that in a different way. So I'm really excited to, to talk to you today about this, especially because this podcast is about listening, right? And the idea yeah. of listening for learning. So. As soon as I saw the title of your book, I'm like, "Oh, this is a great fit." Um, talk to us a little bit. Where did this book come from?
1: Yeah, sure. So, um, I was th- I've been thinking about this. I the first book I wrote was called "Performative Listening: uh, Hearing Others in Qualitative Research," and that project kind of became. Uh, a theory of listening that i I sort of like generated in conversation with performance studies, which is where a lot of my research and teaching takes place and and then this book was sort of like answering the question, okay, so if performative listening is this thing, what happens if I do that? What happens if i if I apply this kind of listening to the classroom uh, experience to to the experience of teaching and learning? so I teach classes in performance studies um, i don 't know I could say a little bit about what performance studies is if that's helpful um, yeah it'd be great um, so performance performance studies is this really nebulous field of inquiry uh, that like encompasses lots of disciplines uh, from theater to musicology to communication and, and in communication where i 'm located, performance comes out of the background of um oral interpretation, elocution. So when the when communication as a discipline sort of took shape in the early 20th century, it was uh, uh, speech teachers in English departments who said, we think actually rhetoric and speech is its own thing. And they joined up at some points with folks who were doing elocution and oral interpretation of literature, which is basically uh, – reading out loud is an interpretive act and we can teach and learn people we could teach people to learn how to read out loud and they would adapt literature so we would adapt literary texts like let's say like huck finn we'll turn huck finn into a staged production um and all of this like backstory of oral interpretation links up with performance studies the broader field for me in three ways performance is a metaphor for thinking about communication, performance is an object that we could study or analyze so we could look at performances and learn about communication. And performance is a method so we can learn by doing things. Um, I always use the example of riding a bicycle. I don't know anybody who learned how to ride a bicycle by reading about it. Everybody learns how to ride a bicycle by falling a bunch, right? So I took these kind of commitments of performance and applied them to listening. and. I teach these performance classes, and I thought, "What happens if I listen to this classroom? Because in a performance classroom, students are getting up, they're moving around, we're trying things out, we're interpreting texts with our bodies and our voices. and it's a, I, I te- I, the classroom I teach in is a it's a performance lab, so it's it's like a black box theater space, and it's very loud. If I leave the door open. People walk by and they shut the door on me all the time because we're making a lot of noise. <laughs> we're not doing like traditional kind of rows of desks and sitting and having kind of quiet, calm discussion, like we're getting up, we're moving around. And, and so I thought, you know, what could we learn about learning and teaching if I, if I engaged with all the sounds, all the listening that's going on in this space? And this book, of course, I get the contract for the book. And the next day, the university shut down for COVID. So, um, oh. <laughs> so so, some of it is written from my experience having taught in this space for 10 years. Um, and some of it is thinking about how to rethink teaching you know, when everything sort of got upended for us. So I, that's a yeah. really long – there's a lot of things in there, but that's sort of how the book came to be.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, there's a lot of fascinating directions we can go. Um, I had uh, Dr. Michael Kloon on. Um, he's a humanities professor and uh, he wrote a defensive judgment. But one of the things he was talking about is the mess that uh, the field of rhetoric is, is in, right? Like nobody really knows what it is or everybody knows what it is. You know what I mean? It's like <laughs> like it's it's very hard. Like you go from department to department, you get completely different things. And communication as a whole kind of seems like that. Um, so that's fascinating to me. Yeah,
1: it's, a, it's like a – it's a very there's – a, there's a large number of colleagues in the discipline who did not start in communication studies, right? So like if I went to a conference – I'm just guessing here and this could be totally wrong. But if I went to a conference for mathematicians, I bet a lot of them started in math. But if you go to a conference in communication – there's people who started in all sorts of places and, and, you know, communication becomes sort of the, uh, the answer to a lot of people's questions, but you know, we're, it's disparate and there's lots of different approaches. There's humanistic approaches, there's critical approaches, there's social scientific approaches. I've been, uh, researching our departments. Uh, we have the, there's these old scrapbooks that, de- that the department has kept for like the last 50 years. And, I like flip back into the early days of the department and, you know, they were doing everything from speech and debate kinds of events to, uh, they were calling it speech science. And I think that it had something to do with sort of like speech pathology maybe, or, uh, you know, like working to help people speak with speaking, but which is a really like kind of like science maybe even like a medical kind of model of approaching communication so i mean i don't know everything about what's going on in the discipline for sure um and then i like locate myself in performance which is a whole nother set of contested terms (laughs) I'm, i'm teaching a grad class on performance theory right now and the one of the themes that you come across is uh the notion that performance is essentially contested. It's an essentially cont- contested concept. And that's the, that's the working premise that we're going to work from here is that like we're engaged in a field of inquiry that doesn't agree on its terms.
0: Yes. Yeah. And, and let me ask you this. And I, I'm not saying this is a, a good or bad thing. This, for me, this is a descriptive thing, right? Um, I think a, like you see rhetoric as a very defined field. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in terms of communication, I think that's the closest you have a couple hundred years ago. Right. You have rhetoric. um, And so it's a very defined field, but that's because you have a very defined culture. And a lot of the reason that a lot of this is contested is because the guideposts for communication, for performance are socially constructed. And now we live in a pluralistic society. We have this globalization and a lot of cultures coming into contact. And that's why the what had previously been things set in stone are now contested because you basically have like guideposts running into each other. Is right. that a fair way to think about it? Maybe, maybe. And I
1: think, um, uh, so I always pause at social construction just a little bit because to me, it's a, it's a, there's a suggestion in that terminology of things being fixed. And so I, th- I think, and performance wants to always play with. The process of creating things, so it might be, uh, and I, I always think of it as constituting realities instead of constructing the realities. So we're making them, and we're constantly remaking them. We're performing them. I think one one thing that makes performance contested also is its its interdisciplinarity. So it's not it's not going to fall only in one f- discipline. Um, so this is sort of like. It's, it doesn't always play by the rules of the institutions of academia because it's crossing boundaries that are created that are created um, to kind of have those fixed goalposts, like you're talking about. Um, of course, universities and academia always champion interdisciplinarity, but they have they don't have the greatest way of making sense of interdisciplinarity when it's happening.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I had uh uh I believe it's her last name is Lave, Dr. Re- Rebecca Lave uh on and she created her own field, critical uh physical geography. And uh and it was uh it was a fight, right? Like so, like so when she describes the process of like coming up with her own field, but it was about the social realities of um landscapes, right? Like uh the way, you know, um uh as an example the way that fertilizer coming off of agriculture create, is creating a dead zone in the gulf of mexico right? right and with the social reasons why that happens which is like an important connecting piece like you just have like the science and the anyways um yeah. like i said there was a lot that you said that was really um uh, i don't want to get too far down this rabbit hole before returning to i think a, a central question and you you definitely hinted at kind of an answer or even gave the answer But for our listeners, what is performative listening? Right. So, um, performative
1: listening for me is a—it's both a a way of theorizing listening and it's a method for practicing listening. I was not—I guess I was—I was not convinced by all the literature on listening when I set out to kind of create that book. I wasn't convinced that that's all there is to listening. I think listening is often this is like a really generic kind of read, but listening is often something we think of as it's either active or it's passive and it's done in order to accomplish some other task, right? Like I'm listening so that I can understand you or I'm listening so that I can, um, succeed or, or whatever. And if I'm not listening, there's something probably, you know, wrong with me or the relationship I'm in with you. (laughs) Uh, and I thought, yeah, that's possible, but I also kind of was playing around with the idea that listening might be enough. Like listening might not be something that we need to do in order to accomplish something else, but listening might be the thing in and of itself. And what does it mean to kind of theorize listening as an act without worrying about what's next? Um, so, and I, I drew on some philosophy some ethics and also some ideas from performance studies, namely performativity, uh, in order to kind of think through what could it mean to to think of listening as a performance and uh just like rhetoric, performance has this sort of like pejorative connotation, you know like it's it's just a performance i I'm fascinated as of late, that performativity has been uh, kind of like adopted in pop culture. And it comes with sort of a pejorative kind of like connotation of, you know, some sort of performative insert activism, right? Performative activism, and that's somehow disingenuous or not not true or real. And the thing about performativity, and this is, you know, folks like Judith Butler um, kind of give us the idea that maybe gender is a performative accomplishment. And she's not saying that gender is fake, but she's saying that gender is something that we do actively. It's made through our performances. Um, And so performativity for me is a making of reality. And to say that listening is performative is to say that listening is a way that we make reality. Um, One of the authors that I I. I'm drawn to is Elizabeth uh, Lapari, who has a theory of listening otherwise, and she's drawing on Levinas's work about um, engaging with the other, um, and and the idea is that when we listen, we make the other possible. So listening is a it's a constitutive performative force that makes other people. Without listening, there's nothing um and so so this is sort of what i'm thinking about with performative listening is the idea that when we listen we're making realities and of course our listening is always also culturally uh shaped and informed so we've learned to listen in certain ways we've learned to make people in certain ways or make relationships in certain kinds of ways um without like doing a lot of extra reading i would i would sort of think i would sort of guess that some of the listening for accomplishing tasks or listening in order to be more efficient in your business this is a listening that we've learned in order to accomplish capitalism right so you know if i listen in a way that's efficient then i'm going to succeed in a certain kind of structure um so I don't know. this is this is it Kind of the performative listening is a thing that makes our reality with others, and maybe if we listen uh, in ways that a- account for and attend for the way that we 've come to be listeners, we might be able to listen differently
0: yeah, um so the way that I have always uh, talked about listening with other people has relied on models, and so this is not. Um, in binary opposition to you, I am trying to move from my own understanding to yours, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um so one thing that I try to encourage people in, and I think is a, a common problem in our society, um, is that a lot of people treat listening and they and I, I'd say these are probably more models of conversation. Mm-hmm. And um is that a lot of people treat conversations or listening as a um as like combat, right? Especially in like podcast type scenarios where it's like how can i score points how can i beat this person you know what i mean like right. i can't tell you how many times i see clips between people having arguments and one person says something that's clever and completely destroys the other person's point and if you stop and think about it it's really depressing because they're actually both wrong if that <laughs> right like like um and so For me, uh, the model I try to push people towards is kind of is listening and and having a conversation with someone uh, working together. The goal is to find truth together, some type of agreement and and, uh, that fusion of horizons. If you're familiar with kind of Gadamer's work, uh, Nietzsche, how does that um, would you consider that listening to score points? Is that still listening or do you have like an ethical component that kind of limits? Um, Am I on the right track there or are these kind of like, uh, are we kind of on like parallel tracks that aren't converging? How do those, how does that fit together?
1: Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, listening to score points is just sort of a disingenuous form of listening again for me that's like not a, it's not, I guess, I'm with you. It's some sort of, we might call it like a dialogic engagement with the other that, that we might be striving for as kind of the, as the center point. Um, but if I'm listening in order to try to like beat you at something, I'm, I prob, I'm probably not, it's not that I'm not listening, I'm listening, but it's, it's got a different function for me. And I'm, you know, and I've, I'm, I'm still moving beyond that point of uh, actually attending to what the, the other is saying, you know, um, mm-hmm. there's a, there's a little, there's a touch of empathy that's going on in, in this kind of work where it's not an empathy of like, I can absolutely understand where you are, but it's, a I I have an ethical imperative to try to reach out toward you. Right. So I'm going to try to like be there and, uh, a, a, a
0: kind of, sort of
1: hold off on moving into my next sort of like desires. Right. But it's listening first.
0: Yeah. As you were talking about making the other, uh, that obviously makes sense. in like that fusion, that like coming together, uh, and obviously, I mean, part of the idea of fusion horizons is that you, you can never fully have someone else's viewpoint. You can share the view, but you can't ha- like, I can't look out through your eyeballs. right? Like, right. Those are, that's your point of view. Um, but, and that makes sense in, uh, uh, Levinas's, uh, other. Um, and so when you talk about making the other, and I'm just kind of rephrasing the question, I think you answered it well, but I think there's more there with, um, when you enter combatively, uh, there's definitely an other, <laughs> but is there, is that, uh, is it like other, but not with a capital O? Or is it just not Levin, uh, Levinas's other? Or how do, when you enter combatively, how does that work with that other person? What does that other person become? Right. So just I'll try
1: to think through this. So I was at, this was a, a while ago, I was, at, I was writing in like a, a Panera Bread. I was sitting there writing in the morning and I there were some people loudly talking. There's always people loudly talking around me, and I love to I love to eavesdrop like it's a it's a favorite it's a favorite. <laughs> I love it. Um,
0: I mean if, people listening, so people, listen- people watching the thing, people, people listening, listening. Yeah.
1: right <laughs> but they start you know, and I feel like we live in a, f- a fairly contentious political climate, and so these folks were talking and they were they were uh espousing views that I found. Like abominable, <laughs> and also <laughs> were ones that I I did not encounter in, uh, in my everyday life from anybody that I knew, um, and I, even 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 college students that I get a wide range of diverse perspectives. So this was a this was a really strong uh, take that they had that I didn't agree with that I knew existed through you know, like external sources, right? Like I knew that it was out there. I just didn't know anybody who had those views and I had to leave. I had I had to move. I had to move. I couldn't take it. Um, cause I, you know, I didn't want to engage either in combat with them because I, you know, I, yes. I um, and I was writing about listening. This is what I'm sitting there writing about. I'm writing about listening, and I'm writing about trying to engage with people f- from different perspectives. And I realized that, like, it's not always possible. So I couldn't, I couldn't do it. Um, and it's, it, it was at that moment. It was I couldn't do that given my position. And given my experiences in the world, I, I found that like not possible. So I'm not I guess that's sort of a roundabout way of saying like sometimes that combative stance it might have a real uh it might have a real legitimate reason for existing and it might prevent us from taking on the stance of the listener. So um, you know, and I think as a you know as a white guy right i have certain privileges also and so i want to be careful before i start to say that everybody should do this kind of listening because not everybody has this same embodied experience and move and have the privilege to move through different systems and structures the way that i do so when i call for listening you know and i think about my own listening it's always it's always located in my embodied perspective and position as listener too um when i leave the panera because these people are talking politics in ways that i found horrendous uh like that's my privilege right to get to leave
0: yeah and uh and maybe this is the flip side or maybe this isn't where you're going at all um maybe the combative nature and this is uh a very difficult question um but like this is where we get into the realm of censorship and when is an appropriate time to like no, that's actually like I mean we we can go to the easy one. The easy one is, no, you're not allowed to yell fire in the theater, right because that that will hurt people, right like we we've established that um, uh and then the, the this this uh, like the exercise of the law in terms of gray areas where it seems really straightforward, and we know a lot of very straightforward cases like fire, or, hey, we're talking about uh you know who should be president next that should probably be an open ended discussion right like right. <laughs> like otherwise it's not a democracy if right. we're censoring like um but then uh, you get into the these these things where it's like okay that's you know okay making death threats is bad is that a death threat is that a joke like right. is that someone pretending you know and so uh that also comes to mind as you as you're talking about this where it's like um and you have a, like you were talking about that privilege of like you know uh, I'm not uh, I you're not the Panera owner you can't ask those people to leave but you can leave right. and you could say I I'm going to be combative here and I'm just like <laughs> you are not the other I'm engaging with today right Um and and, and so, in that moment too and in that moment right?
1: If I think about my listening as constitutive of a reality, my listening created a new reality. Like it created a new reality for me, one where I was no longer in Panera and it created a reality for others where I was no longer there either. I I didn't want to make that, you know, I was, I didn't, I didn't allow that to continue, Um, which is maybe like, you know, not as satisfying as, you know, (laughs) slamming down my coffee and, you know,
0: telling them what I thought or whatever. Well, it's interesting, though, because it becomes very apparent, and we know this from a psychological perspective, that one of the best things for you is to be around life-giving people, right? One of the worst things you can do for your mental health is be around people. And so we have to make these decisions on a daily basis where we constitute our realities. Because part of the reality that was constituted is, I'm sure you left in a great mood uh, when you left Panera, <laughs> right. yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and, and it's become part of your story right. that, you are, that you are thinking through that. And so that's also part of, like, the new reality that that, that listening created. And if you'd had Bo's... Uh, Noise-canceling uh, headphones <laughs> yeah. on. Yeah, yeah. 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 You, you, like, that reality wouldn't have
1: happened, you know?
0: And right. so, yeah, it was.
1: Yeah, and I would have continued to, you know... I mean, I think uh, Rob Walzer is a musicologist, and he has a book review of this book called um, Bad Music, The Music We Love to Hate. And he... He takes the book to task in one of the most important ways for me because the book's written by other respected musicologists. And he, he, uh, he scolds the other musicologists who've written this book, which is a, basically it's a, it's a hit job on pop music that they consider to be trashy. Right. So they're like, ABBA is terrible and you know, it's a joke and all this. And, and Walzer says, look, it's a, your taste is a matter of privilege. Like millions of people love this music. And really the only bad music that there is, and this goes to your point about calling out fire, is music that's dangerous, um, is music that uh, is hateful. Um, so, and, you know, and he, he says, that's where we could have a conversation about what bad music is, is music that is, and, and he gave some examples. I can't remember right now, but there's some pretty horrific examples of music that's used to leverage, uh, hateful groups. Um, yes. Uh, and yeah, I, I didn't know about that <laughs> again, cause of my own privilege, <laughs> but, um, but he's like, those are examples we could talk about as bad music, but otherwise, you know, it's a matter of taste a lot of times and taste is always about privilege. So I like kind of like draw that as an analogy to some of this thinking about like uh, the way that I'm thinking about privilege too. It's like, well, I need to acknowledge when do I feel uncomfortable because that's probably a lot about me and it's probably got a lot to do with my privilege. And there may be moments when uh, I might be ethically called to do another thing, but uh, you know, these sounds are happening all around us. People are talking, people are listening all the time and and how I feel as a listener in those moments is reflective of, of my position in the world.
0: Yeah, thank you. And uh, I really appreciate your patience as we kind of have, have dug through that. Um, I want to make sure to actually kind of talk through your, your book a little yeah. bit. <laughs> yeah, 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 so yeah. I, yeah. Um, and obviously like, you know, performative listening is like the heart of it. So I think that's, um, that's good to kind of lay the foundation there uh for part one you say listening to bodies and you even mentioned your own kind of embodied listening what does it mean to listen to bodies and what is uh you know you mentioned a little bit about privilege um what uh what is this embodiment of listening and how does that change from person to person
1: right yeah. So yeah, I divide the book into three kind of, I segmented the educational experience into three kind of things. So there's bodies, there's classrooms, and there's pedagogy happening in the and listening to bodies. Um, I made this artificial kind of set of constraints for myself to try to write through and think through what it means to listen to bodies. And there's, I think about students' bodies and I think about teachers' bodies. Um, and I, so um, in, I started to draw on and uh, the work that's happening in sound studies um, where sound is taken as this uh, kind of question of cultural production. And I came across the idea. um, I think the name is uh, Michelle Shion, and he writes about, um, he writes about sound as it's used in movies a lot of the time and, and, and the way we have sound there, but he, he warns against causal, approaches to thinking about sound. Uh, so where we would think about sound as coming from a source. Um, it,
0: it's a reduction. Do you spell uh, The uh, Forgive me. Oh, Causal. C-A-U-S. Causal. Causal, oh, causal sorry. Yes, got it. Yeah, I it's yeah, yeah. like, Ozzel. I'm like, Ozzel. I'm not familiar with that. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. So thinking
1: about like the door slamming is the sound of the door. Well, the door doesn't slam on its own. The door's been slammed by somebody and there's a house and there's a door jam and there's all these things that made that sound like reverberate. So we can't just, he says, you can't just attribute sounds to objects because that's not how sound works. It's a, it's a process and it happens in interaction. So I wanted, I wanted to kind of think about the sounds that students' bodies might make in the classroom, all the while being very careful and aware that I'm not trying to attribute the sounds to the students because there's a lot of things going on in that context. But listening to these these sounds for me was a matter of listening in some ways to the excess or the things that we don't consider relevant or important on their, on their face they're not things that show up in the syllabus so but i feel like they're instructive so during a round of student performances students are getting up they're presenting their work and there's always there's always somebody who's opening a bag of chips right next to me while i'm writing down my instru- you know and I, you know, there's somebody who gets a phone call and gets up in the middle of the class and walks out in a really like, it seems disruptive, right? But these are all instructive sounds. And so I'm trying to attend to like, there's all these sounds. There's the sounds of somebody standing up there, um, getting ready to give their performance and they freeze. And there's this, un- we call it an uncomfortable silence. And I want to interrogate like, why is that uncomfortable for us? What is that about? so i used sound and listening to the sounds that bodies are making in this classroom as a as a place to kind of sort of think through some of the same things I was talking about in my Panera example. Why do I feel like uncomfortable in this moment? Why is this something I don't like? Or why is this a distraction? Or why is this not the thing we're talking about right now? Why are we not talking about how loud potato chips are? Like this is important. And we're learning a lot from that moment. Um, And in the final chapter in part one, I make a distinction between sound bodies and uh, institutional bodies, and this is drawing on Deborah Capchin's work. Um, she's a perf- uh, performance and sound scholar, and she, she kind of, ex- I she does a lovely job of explaining the ways that bodies are constituted by institutions. So we are made as uh, she calls it, legal bodies. Um, so, like a legal body has certain attributes, and they're they're authorized by institutions to do certain things or not. Um, the classroom is an institution that is full of uh policy about how yes. people should sound, how they can sound, and even I was you know going through my own archive of syllabi that I'd written over the years, and I used to have a whole lot more by way of policy about what students could sound like in my classroom. And I hadn't really given a lot of thought to it before, but I was like sort of fascinated how much we try to manage the sounds of the classroom um, through policy. And then on the other side, thinking about the ways that bodies are made in and by sound, they, exceed these institutional constraints in many different ways, in some ways that are really generative and probably important for us to attend to. So, um, you know, silence your cell phone used to be the policy. And in the last, I don't know, five or six years, silencing a student's cell phone in the classroom, for me, felt increasingly like a dangerous idea um, to tell a student to keep their cell phone silent. Now, I still go in places and I still sort of like, I question when I hear somebody say, you need to turn off your cell phone, right? Like, well, we live in a culture and a society where there may be need for me to have access to my cell phone's sounds so that I can either attend to some sort of crisis or emergency that's external or attend to some sort of crisis or emergency that might be imminent. Um, You know, there's, you know, there's always on Tuesdays, we get the alert and the phone goes off and the university tells us this is a test of our emergency system. And so, you know, like turning off your cell phone could be uh, not wise, right? In that context. That's it's wild, but like this is the, you know, the way that I I kind of orient towards thinking about sound is like, wow, why are we trying to control these sounds? Um and and what would they be leaving out if we did? So
0: hmm. Do you have any other concrete examples of policy um especially like even as you talked about your early syllabi where you were trying to control student sound? Um So I used to have um,
1: I, you know, and some of this is the pandemic caused me to rethink my teaching and what's important, but I used to have participation be a, a graded part of a class, right? And usually, what we meant when we gave points for participation was um, people talking right? Like making sound. How do I know you're participating? Yeah. You're making sound. You're ra- you're raising your hand. And sometimes I'm making you raise your hand. That's an implicit policy, right? Like raise your hand to talk um, and then make sound for me to show me that you're engaging with the work, which could be terribly anxiety producing for many people. And it could also yield all sorts of unproductive, you know, we were talking about social media earlier you know i mean this is is that participating just because i'm speaking am i am i doing this and then what about different ways of participating like via listening which doesn't present itself in a way that's audible always right um so that that's like my other kind of concrete thought thought about like we i used to try to regulate sound and incentivize it you know
0: Yeah, and I I hadn't thought of the positive side of it. I was expecting it to be more along the lines of silencing your cell phone. And that's really, that's true. We try to manufacture sound too, right? Right. Um, Especially in a performance classroom. I mean, I'd assume that you're like, there has to be some kind of sound for a grade at that point, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean... How do you handle that? Yeah, you got got to get up and you
1: got to give this performance. And um, oftentimes what people get anxious about in that context is... Doing a good job, doing something aesthetically beautiful, unique, whatever, and and but that's not my concern. Usually, my concern is making meaning meaningful choices, um, which could yield um, the most beautiful, ha- touching performance you've ever seen. It could also yield something that just is a total flop. But if you have um, if you have a meaningful choice behind what you did, then to me that's That's doing the interpretive work of performance. So because performance for me is about embodying my interpretation of a text and and doing so in a way that's reflexive, that is possibly generative. Um, And it may not always work, but it's one thing to get up there. I always give the example. It's one thing to get up there and. uh, Pace around and mutter your lines because you're unprepared, it's another thing to get up there and pace around and mutter your lines because that's how you've empathized with the the text. And that's how you want to embody that text. That, that could be a meaningful choice, you know? So, um, but I, I don't want to make a determination ahead of time about what the sound has got to be like, but yeah, it's definitely part of the, of the course is saying, yeah, you gotta, you gotta get up there and, and we could also think about sound hopefully in ways that exceed um the ear, so you know um, i don't I sound is just the thing I'm playing with, but it's not only about you know your your auditory processes, but it's this fully sensory kind of way of engaging with things so
0: yeah i And forgive me for kind of diverting down the rabbit trail here. When you say reflexive and generative, can you talk about uh, what those mean for you in this context?
1: Sure, yeah. So, um, and these are two of my, these are
0: my go-to kinds
1: of concepts and performative listening is all about reflexivity, which is a turning back on the self and questioning not what I did, but um, how I was doing what I was doing. So it's not just that like, after this, conversation, I might be reflective and I might reflect on, oh, I had this great podcast talk, you know, somebody wanted to talk about my book. I can't believe it. I might then be reflexive and think about how it kind of the conditions that came to make this possible um, and how this kind of, you know, it's not just that I had a conversation about my book on a podcast. It's about I have a relationship with uh you know my brother-in-law who has a relationship with you who put us in contact with one another and that's a really kind of interesting dynamic and um so reflexivity is is trying to cultivate that awareness of how I came to the way that I'm listening in the first place I I was in that panera bread I could reflect on it it was a crummy situation but I can be reflexive and say Wow, this tells me a lot about who I am as a person and how privileged I am to and maybe isolated I am to not have her encounter encounter this kind of discourse, right? In you know, in a in any kind of way. And that's a so reflexive is is kind of accounting for my position as a listener. Um and then and then generative for me is about Uh, so a lot of the work I do draws on critical scholarship, critical theories, and this is good because I think that we're trying to uncover how things work, how things are made, how realities are made, but, um, it's not enough for me to point out kind of the, the brokenness of things. It's, it's got to also have some sort of component that's generative that makes something new, uh, maybe a new insight maybe a new uh, connection, Um, performance is about being generative as well. So when I interpret a text and I, let's say I just create a performance of a a text that I've read, the generative part of that is not just that I've reflected to you this written text, but that I've now created a new way for you to think about this text through the way that I've interpreted the text. Um, When I say listening is generative, it's that making that listening does. It makes the relationships. It's, it's, um, it's a creative. It's uh, open ended. It's transformative. Some, something new is happening. Um, it's the one plus one is not two, it's yellow kind of thing. So, you know, when I listen to this, something new happens. And I don't always know what that will be, but I'm aiming for the kind of generative moment.
0: Um, and I think, uh, and I don't want to jump straight to morality. I understand. I think, uh, for me, when I look at, um, art or making practices, uh, for me, a lot of it is forming, uh, an undergirding vision of the good life for people. And so a lot of like listening to these different performances, um, you know, I, I mentioned it before, uh, Dr. Kloon talked about um, negative capacity uh, in John Keats, or the the suspension of our moral values so that they can grow, right? Um, so this idea that when I when I am approached by something new and creative, uh, it allows me to see the world in a new way that may actually impact and make me a better person, right? Because uh, be like and. Uh, am I on track with that? Is that is that a, a proper way to think about that? Sure. I I guess I hadn't really thought about like the
1: the individual implication as much as just sort of like why we might be doing the things we're doing uh, hmm. as a, a in a kind of a pragmatic way. But yeah, I mean, it, I like the idea of suspending some sort of values in order to try to maybe change. I think that the the I give I have this assignment where students perform and then I ask students to respond to those performances. And I've recently changed that from a response to the performance about the performance. So no longer like tell me, you know, what that performance meant for you or anything like that to a response where I ask you to make a generative kind of response where you create something new because of the performance so um i am and maybe this like, like maybe that connects to what you're talking about uh a little bit but I, so it's i the generative is about kind of saying yes and to the thing that i've encountered um uh i i didn't i didn't go to the movie and I make a response and write on like Rotten Tomatoes what I thought of the movie. Instead, I went to that movie and now I have to go make a movie. Like I saw that movie, now I have to make a movie. That that would be a generative response, right? I I went to that or I went to that movie and now I have to make a painting. Not I'm going to go online and make some sort of like, uh, you know, monologue about Rant. what I thought. Of. Yeah, <laughs> like that. that's not generative for me. I'm, in that, in that sense of creating something because of an encounter with something else.
0: Yeah. And I think there might be something, and I love that you're you're talking about this way. Uh, and I, I obviously come at it from a, a slightly different discipline. For me, as we talk about this, there's something generative that happened in Panera Bread, right? Right. Yeah. Because you, you like, and it's not, it, it didn't come out as a, a work of art or even a, a making practice per se except as how it has shaped and formed you if that makes sense and um now <laughs> whether it has made you a a better or worse person um you know <laughs> yeah right like th- that's that's a complicated topic uh cuz i didn't know you before you were in the panera bread maybe you were just like this absolutely incredible person and now you're just like slightly less incredible yes. but the <laughs> but i i think you know and that's where the reflexivity comes in. I my guess is, is that it made you a better person because it provoked analysis. Yeah. Right? And then then you have created you have adopted new a new making of yourself, if that makes sense.
1: Absolutely. I mean, look, I'm thinking about listening as this process of trying to encounter others and to sort of allow for others to exist. Um and often I ima- when I say that, I imagine others whose stories might need to be told who aren't getting told or who aren't getting heard, right? Um, I'm, I'm not imagining the status quo usually, right? Uh, but then to encounter somebody who really like threw me for a loop, I wasn't expecting that. And then it's like, well, maybe I'm not as good at this as I thought, you know? <laughs> maybe this isn't yeah. as easy as I thought, or this is, for me, it's not hard for me to imagine that others might have experiences that I can't understand. Um, and that those experiences aren't being permitted to exist because of cultural or institutional structures that we have in place that I, I accept, I think I can accept that premise that like, the the world the the society culture that we've created it doesn't always allow for everybody to thrive um, it's harder for me to imagine some of the people who might be okay with the fact that that is the way that it is right and so then it's like okay how do I uh, how do I try to comprehend uh, maybe I can't comprehend but how do I just try to uh, uh, like accept that that's a that's a reality that also exists. Um, so you know it's it's saying, I'm trying to think back to, to yeah, so the thing that's generative here is, yeah, it makes me have to sharpen this this kind of theoretical perspective, it makes me have to to kind of revisit this a little bit, and I don't want to give too much of uh i don't want I don't want to like draw too much focus to that moment either, but because uh I think that it's maybe when I'm doing that, it's sort of like, well, what else am I li- li- leaving out? What am I not listening to in, in lieu of that? Yeah. But I think that it's important because it's like uh, I encountered that moment. Now I need to sort of rethink what it means when I say that we've got to listen to others. Um, because for me to be able to walk away from that, that's one thing, but there may be people who can't walk away from that moment.
0: Right yes or if they're walking away they're walking away from thanksgiving and they're losing family relationships over right. stuff like that right and that's a very different thing than walking away from a complete stranger in panera because they're obnoxious right or right. abominable or who might be return. yeah 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 i'm sorry their views their views were abominable, are abominable. That i want to be yeah. yeah
1: well and they might be doing harm to others which is like even more yeah. kind of like sort of mm. troubling is that it's I don't like ABBA, right? Like, I don't listen to that music, but uh, um, it doesn't harm me either, right? And I know yeah. that others like that music, and that's totally fine. I'm, that's totally cool. We can have it on in the background. But um, I'm not, I'm not going to choose that, but, like, it doesn't harm me either. But some things can right. harm people. And that, I think even with the institutional policies that I was trying to suggest at mm-hmm. is that some of those policies actually harm people. And, and they might leave people out. And that's a that's something that if we attend to sound and listening in the classroom space, we might really kind of, um, we might create more inclusive kinds of pedagogies or more kind of inclusive teaching moments where it's like, well, I never really considered. I mean, I was not thinking of this when I first put my cell phone policy in place or whatever, or participation. I wasn't really thinking about like how kind of that maybe privilege certain bodies over other bodies um but it, it could have been doing harm to people and and excluding them in certain ways that's you know worth revisiting
0: yeah uh and i want to be cognizant of your time uh yeah. so I, I definitely there's there's so much to talk about here but uh i want to make sure we talk about how so we've talked about bodies um and maybe this is, goes into the institutional discussion a little bit. Listening from learning spaces, what do you mean by that? I mean there's a materiality to the spaces that we're we're
1: working in when we're working in the classroom and sound studies draws our attention to that. So uh, you know the acoustics of a space are designed intentionally. Uh, they're they're rhetorical even. Um, there's a um I'm drawing a blank on the name right now, but there's a you know, there's a great book that's like a history of acoustic design in the 20th century. And, there, you know, in it wasn't until the early 1900s that there was a noise ordinance around hospitals. Um, but but that that was put into place because as the Industrial Revolution saw the, you know, creation of machines and cars and things like that, all of a sudden, hospitals were in the midst of cities, in the midst of lots of sounds that were, you know, kind of terrible. And so, uh, there was a noise ordinance and now, now you see that, um, uh, there's things like insulation, uh, in our buildings to kind of dampen noise, uh, and sounds of course, like when we're on a podcast right now, and I know somebody's going to manipulate the sound later or that you've got, (laughs) we both have these microphones and headphones and you, you know, like we've created sound spaces that are going to, Foster this kind of dialogue. So, um, but when when they when acoustic panels were first sold to office buildings, they were sold to increase productivity. Um, You know, if if workers can have less noises in their workspace, they can work more, and that'd be great. Um, So, classrooms are acoustically designed, and I wanted to think through how those spaces are designed, how sound is managed to create classrooms in certain kinds of ways, you know, and there's like really obvious things. Like I'm thinking about my experience in school where there's bells that signal the class changes and things like that, or, you know, um, classroom desks are configured in a ways to try to like manage the sound of bodies in the classroom space in, in ways that can foster and facilitate a particular kind of pedagogy, you know, usually where some sort of, Teacher is talking to students, and you don't want students doing a lot of extra talking, so we confine their bodies to desks that can be spread apart or whatever. Like you know, so thinking about the the um, the learning space in terms of sound is just another kind of exercise for me to think through how do how does sound play a part in the classroom? How does sound play a part in making the physical space where we we listen and learn?
0: Would another example be um, uh, tile versus carpet, uh, especially see it like uh, like uh, the trade-offs between a quieter, better, better learning space versus something that's easier to clean, that's more durable, and these kind of financial constraints.
1: Absolutely. Tile in the classrooms. Um, how big the classroom is, how many you know, how many bodies we'll let into a classroom uh, in that space, what kind of materials we might put on the walls, um, all of those things. And they're so they're super culturally specific and they have a big impact and a really taken for granted impact on the way the classroom is going to work, too.
0: Yeah. And there's these financial constraints there, are, uh, along with value constraints. So, for instance, the belief in public education means that you have to have room for everybody. Right. But then you also have financial constraints <laughs> yeah. that are like, uh, okay, but we can only, you know, so now you see this consistent fight between, okay, how many students is too many students to one teacher? Mm-hmm. And, but how do we fit everybody in? Because it's important to fit everybody in. Right. Right. And then
1: you have something like a global pandemic come by and teach us that, you know, the way to contain aerosolized uh, virus particles is to wear masks. And uh, then we do that and it's going to change the way that the classroom can be kind of managed or the way the learning can happen. I mean, it's not like there's no moral judgment on my part on masks, but it's, it's a, it does affect what. Kind of learning we have institutionalized as you know a best practice, right?
0: Yeah, I mean it obviously limits sound. It limits sounds
1: like fundamentally. It does. (laughs) It I mean it just will and it does and it doesn't. It's it it's a it's a challenge. It's not impossible, but it 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 also draws attention to those financial constraints about where we put our values and resources into these spaces where you know. When I mean, you have a classroom of like 30 children um, where there's already not enough room for them. And then we're trying to space them out and also kind of muffle them. And, you know, like sound is a huge kind of factor into how that educational space gets kind of run. And every little, every little adjustment or change, I think, could, could be attended to when we think about listening and sound so you know so sound and listening to use one of the terms we were talking about before the show is like becomes a heuristic for me for interpreting the space i'm going to interpret the space via via a logic of sound and listening and think about okay it's not just that um man the the current events pj are so hard not to like bring into all of this but if i you know if i like take books off of classroom shelves all of a sudden I've changed the acoustic design of this space in a way that it's not just that I've limited what books I'm considering like good or bad um, for students to have access to, but now I've also made like the sound of the room
0: different. And I think the insights that you're drawing from, you're using sound as kind of, uh, and you've kind of mentioned sort of like an artificial constraint for your studies because otherwise it's too broad, but these insights, uh, like even as you're talking about books, um, and I understand that some people have some problems with their uh, methodology, but you look at like Freakonomics, the number one uh, indicator that a kid will read is the not- presence of books in the home. And I assume that goes to the classroom, right? I assume, like, yeah. Like kids get bored. There are, if you have a bunch of books in there, that's, you know, and I, there's there's a lot there. The, the point is, is that what you're saying about sound is the same with sight, Right. Uh, you were talking about what's up on the walls and that kids see, and you could take a lot of these very similar insights, and they get applied in slightly different ways, but the underlying heuristic is very similar. There's a similar structure here in the way that in, it institutional like uh, things are guided institutionally. Right. Obviously, you're going to be talking about not uh, the way the fact that light uh, reflects off things, right, rather than reverberates through, is going to be different, right? There's a right. different logic of sound to sight. But the way that the institution shapes these and a lot of the, there's some similarities in structure. Absolutely. I mean, you
1: walk into a room and it's a new, uh, it's a new space. It has nothing in it. You feel different than when you walk into a space that feels, uh, these are sort of squishy words, like warm and inviting, like, but what I would mean by that is like, there's stuff on the walls like you're talking about, or there's carpeting, or there's a rug, or there's some you know, like beanbag chairs for people to sit in and like, this feels like a space where I, I feel like I feel comfortable to be in this space. Right. And I feel, uh, and that feeling, I would ask who feels comfortable and how did the institution work to make that the thing that is going to be what we're going to privilege as comfortable for students learning. Um, and, and I think that we can think of, we can learn a lot from that in thinking about, well, you know, like, Maybe not everybody will feel comfortable in these spaces, but maybe we can, we can sort of question how that's being kind of produced and how that's producing the kind of learning that we're, we're getting towards. Um, and it's always, uh, there's always an ideology or there's always a value system that's underlying those things.
0: Yeah. And you were talking about with like socially constructing, it's your, you prefer that to socially constructed. Um, you can talk about touch and presence too, like mm-hmm. so for instance um what 's considered close in america uh I had a friend who uh lived in China for a year and a half, and you were not considered in line to something unless you were literally touching not with your hands but with like your body, the person in front of you, which in America would be <laughs> grossly impolite right, and so right. it 's very very I, I, what I, I I love the in depth nature and the way that you get into the weeds of, of the sound, but also like I hope that what comes out is that the there's the way like uh, your approach and analysis is something that could be replicated across the different senses, even. Right.
1: Yeah. And I I think I'm thinking of, as I start to think about sound as vibration, and I think you know like less to do with your ear and more to do with just being sensorily aware. You know, but Um, I do think, yeah, I think it could, it could absolutely get us to think about hopefully the ways that different institutional spaces invite certain kinds of practices and, and what those implications are
0: as well. So I, I, one, I want to say thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, uh, as a final, do you have a final takeaway for, uh, our listeners today? Um, wow. Well, I think um, (laughs) (laughs) just sum up your whole book in like one thing. One thing. (laughs) Yeah. That's tricky. I guess the, I like to think of it
1: as an invitation to think about listening as something that we do with our bodies that we do in certain spaces and, and that it's not a neutral act. Um, but it's it's a it's a potentially generative way of engaging with the world and with others. So you know, if we think about listening, we might we might approach learning in a way that's more expansive than uh, sort of an outcome-driven approach to to thinking and learning, but instead a kind of a site for—I'm eh, so nervous to say it—but maybe like a site for for surprise for something for something that we hadn't considered before.
0: And I, I'm sorry, I don't I don't want do to. Like, that's as fine. As you're, you're speaking here, no, no. I, as you're speaking here, I feel like there like there's obviously ethical implications to what you're saying, and I feel like there's even like, do you think like the the virtue of a, a certain kind of humility is present? that like they like the it posits a certain kind um when you talk about this openness to correction this oh even just this openness to surprise that mm-hmm. uh and that that's really what it takes to um welcome the other right. right yeah
1: i started to do this thing so i thinking about you know the metaphors that we're using and thinking about Lakoff and johnson and the metaphors we live by and Uh, So I've started ever since I started writing about listening, I've started to try to use listening metaphors in the way that I communicate with others. Um, It's tricky, because the visual metaphors are pervasive, and they're easy to come by. But, um, and they're also really pointed, you know, like, look at look at what I'm saying here, look right here, versus listen to what I have to say, which it invites you to take a different stance altogether. Uh, and so, yeah, I um, I'm I try to sort of if I write an email and I'm I'm looking forward to I'm looking forward to I'm looking forward. What would you What would you say instead of I'm looking forward? Right, you know, um, maybe we're. I don't know.
0: My if, ears are itching to hear you. <laughs>
1: yeah, I'm I'm I'm
0: ready to I'm
1: ready to listen, or I'm excited ah, I'm excited yeah. to listen. I'm excited to I'm excited to hear what you have to say. Uh, it Mm. puts it puts that relationship in a different orientation altogether. And so I think for me, that's the ethic of listening is it's that openness. It's that opening outward instead of assuming that I'm the authority who's going to show you what I mean.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, Dr. McRae, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, PJ.